A reading from the book of John. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. But yes, uh, the week after Easter. Classically, this is a Sunday where the church has this collective hangover from the pomp and circumstance of the week before. Last week, we got to proclaim, to declare that the tomb was empty in a church that was full. And this week, we still have the same message, but it's not just the tomb that's empty. Many of our churches are as well. Though someone forgot to give us the memo, I think, a little bit on that one. And so this week, we have the same message. And we're living in the same reality, but often it doesn't feel that way. Because we're still living in the post-Easter world. It's just that we don't always act like it. We often act like the disciples do in this passage. And in fact, this passage includes one week after Easter, the encounter between Thomas and Jesus. And this is a rich passage, and it's, it's our last sermon that we're going to have in the Gospel of Mark this year. And so this morning, I don't have three main points. I've got no alliteration. I just want us to walk through this passage and to see what it is that the Lord has to teach us about who he is and who we are and what it means about how then shall we live. And if there is one point that I have and, and one point that I hope we all take away from this, it's, it's the point that John tells us at the end of this passage that he had in writing down this gospel itself. He says, there's a lot of things that I could have written. I wasn't able to write them all, but I wrote these things. And we're reading these things, and I'm preaching these things so that in hearing the word of God, 
We believe in the word of God become flesh, that he is the Messiah, the son of God, and that believing in him, you have life in his name. That's all I want for any of us, to, to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that, that he is who Thomas says he is, my Lord and my God. That personal declaration of amazing faith, that, that personal relationship, that's what I want us to walk away from. That's what I want for everyone, and that through this belief, through this relationship, you have real, transformed, abundant life. So with that in mind, let's turn to our passage starting in verse 19 where it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So it's Easter evening and the disciples were gathered together behind locked doors. And at this point, we can be sure that that Peter and the beloved disciple had, had certainly shared what they had seen. The stone's been rolled away. The tomb was empty. The grave clothes were lying there folded and wrapped just so. Surely Mary had told them of what she had seen, uh, who she thought was the gardener, but it turned out to be Jesus, and he had called her by name, and he had given her message to tell the others, I have seen the Lord. And yet the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid. They had heard this strange news that Jesus might be alive, but they didn't get what it meant for them. All they knew is that at this point, they could very well end up dead. They were afraid of, of the Jewish leaders, the same people who had arrested Jesus and conspired with the Romans to have him executed, that, that what had started with Jesus would end with them. That, you know, that kill the head and the body will die, but they're thinking, well, what if they could do both? He's the head. We're the body. And so they were afraid of of what was going on outside, and so they locked themselves inside. And a locked door provides this sense of safety and security and protection, some semblance even of of sanctuary. The door is locked, so nothing bad can happen to me. But we know, of course, that doors aren't the only things with locks. One of the earliest Christian commentators on this passage said that fear caused the disciples to lock the house and their hearts. And we all know what it's like to turn the deadbolts on our hearts out of fear. Fear of the future. What might happen to us? Fear of the present. Fear of what's happening in our world or our country or our culture. Or fear of what's happened in the past. That what happened then might happen again now. You dare to have a difficult conversation with someone instead of, and instead of them receiving it in good faith, they question your intentions and integrity, and the deadbolt on your heart goes click. You have a new idea, a new opportunity that you're excited about, and so you share it with someone only to hear back from them the 101 reasons why this could never or would never work And the deadbolt on your heart goes, click. It could even be that you're coming to a place of of greater love for Jesus or Christian conviction, and it's something that's happening in in you, and you just don't know who you can share it with, but you want to share it with someone, but you're afraid that you'll think you're some kind of idiot or zealot or, you know, those types of religious people. And so for fear of being misunderstood, the deadbolt on your heart goes, click. 
Or someone who you love and care about is deeply broken and they've betrayed your, your, your trust for the umpteenth time. And this time it's the straw that broke the camel's back and so the deadbolt on your heart goes click. I was listening to this podcast a couple weeks ago talking about how hard it is for people to receive negative feedback. And we fear it so much that when we start to receive it, we have this physiological response. Our breathing gets shallow and our heart starts beating faster. And actually our brains sort of protect our egos and they only allow certain information to come inside. Click. The human heart has a lock which gives us the appearance of safety from that which might harm us, but it actually keeps us from that which we need. But the good news from this passage is that deadbolts can't stop Jesus. So the risen Christ enters into their presence and he speaks a word of peace. Peace be with you. That's his first words to them. And then later in this same scene, Jesus says again, peace be with you. And then a week later, when they're all gathered together again, Jesus says, peace be with you. It's almost as if John doesn't want us to miss something. That when the risen Jesus comes into our midst, it is to free us from fear and to restore us to peace, which in its Hebrew sense is shalom, wholeness, integrity. Whereas fear brings chaos, Jesus' presence brings peace and restores order. And when we think of what order looks like, I think it can be helpful of thinking of having things in the correct order in our life. Placing Christ first and everything else falling in line under that. But so many of us sometimes live from a place of, of fear. And there's lots of things to be afraid of. Fear surrounding money. We don't have enough, and so we either hoard it, but that's usually not what happens. We just sort of spend it without thinking about it. And we're afraid to even look at that area of our lives. And so this fear around money sows chaos because it comes first in, our, in the order of our lives instead of Christ. Or there's the fear that you're going to miss out on something that you want so badly in your lives. This, this could be something like a, a relationship. You just want to meet someone, and, and that's a real fear. I, I hear that. But that fear can drive us towards relationships or ways of being in relationship that are unhealthy and not honoring of the person who God sees you as. But then there's another fear which just causes us to, to live our lives in, in safety. You know, we're not sure if we're ready to take the next step to to try X, Y, or Z or, or enter that next phase or chapter in our lives. And so we never take a risk and we never live in faith and we never trust that if we fail, if we fall, God is going to catch us. And so we try to be safe and we live within these comfortable confines, but that means that we never really do anything of substance. All of these are ways that we let fear reign. But when we put Jesus first, it's not that we're not afraid anymore. It's just that his peace becomes greater than our fears, which sets us free to start really living the lives that he wants us to live. So after Jesus appears in their midst and speaks this word of peace, John tells us that Jesus showed them his wounds and his disciples were glad. And the word for glad is, is it's the word for rejoice. And so the sight of the Lord's wounds filled them with joy. 
That's a strange thing to think of if you see someone's wounds or a gaping scar. Usually we recoil, but they were glad. What's going on here? It's a couple of things. And first, I think it's just that seeing these wounds proves to them that Jesus really did, in fact, rise from the dead. That this was the same Jesus. It wasn't some ghost or apparition. It wasn't a a, a doppelganger or stand-in. These wounds proved that the same Jesus who was crucified had triumphed over death, wounds, and all. But the second reason I think that seeing Jesus' wounds filled them with joy is, is that our scars tell the story of God's grace through suffering. Scars don't contradict our testimony. They, they, they actually ratify it. And the disciples knew what it was like to have scars. They bore the scars of guilt and shame because they had abandoned and betrayed Jesus. And they bore the wounds of fear and, and disbelief and disappointment about what had happened in the last week of Jesus' life. And in the future, they were going to bear the scars of following Jesus into the world and sharing not just in his mission and ministry to the world, but, but in his, and his passion and his death for the sake of the gospel. And so scars testify to the power of God's grace in the face of suffering. And so in that light, scars can be much more than, than ugly marks on our bodies of past pain. They can be beautiful tokens of God's providential care. Look at your own body and consider its scars. They each have a story to tell. I don't have too many, but one trivial one is I have a scar on my index finger. It's a little over an inch long. It's a gash that I got actually right here at church, probably 20 feet away from here. When I was 12 or 13 years old, it was the summer vacation Bible school. My role was to play the part of Aaron, the high priest. And so I had the whole garb on, the turban, the, the, the cloak, the garment, the bells on the bottom of it. And so I was helping out, and somehow, this is the freakest thing, I was leaving the men's bathroom in the locker room, walking out into the gym, and somehow my finger, when my hand swung back, it got stuck in the door jam. That's a heavy door. Like, if you go in there, that's a very heavy door to get caught. You never want to get caught in the jam. But it popped the skin right open. And my finger was bleeding, but, but we, we, we wrapped it up, put the, the Band-Aid on, and uh, I, I played Aaron for the kids. I, I powered through. And then when I finished, there was a few nurses in the church, and one of them, Esther Bearden, took out a look at it and said, we need to get you stitches. And so Esther took me to the doctor to get stitched up. And, and so it's a small scar, but it's a small reminder and a small testimony to me of the role that this place and its people have played in my life in caring for me and nurturing me in the faith. So I can never forget that moment when I look at that scar. And when I look at... Uh, my son Gregory's body, I see it's covered with scars. Each of them tells a story. There's the scar on his feet for when he was ripped from Amy's womb during an emergency C-section at 23 weeks. The scar on his back where he had an artery coming from his heart closed when he was a week old. The scar on his belly from the drain put in there to treat his intestinal perforation. Each one of those scars tells a story. And as his parents, they're not just his scars, they're our scars. But they testify about a time when he was so sick and we were so scared, but so many of you prayed so much and cared for us so well that now when we look at them, they make us glad. Glad not just that he's alive and he's doing as good as he's doing, but but so glad that we're part of a church community that know what it means to love with abandon. 
Those scars testify to the grace of God in his life and through this community. On Christ's wounds, the great Archbishop of Canterbury from the middle of the 20th century, William Temple, wrote, The wounds of Christ are his credentials to the suffering race of men. The scars that Jesus' body bore are his reminder to us that God is with us in the depths of our pain and that he has seen that pain through to the other side. That in God's hands, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Not the pain that gives us scars. It's not wasted. So Jesus bypasses these locked doors of fear. He speaks a word of peace to his fearful disciples. He shows them his wounds and they're glad. And that fills them with joy. But then he gives them a mission. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so that's his commission in John. And so the church is the people gathered around the crucified and risen Jesus who are filled with the Holy Spirit and then sent in the world to continue his mission. That's why we're here. We're a part of that continued mission of Jesus in the world. But then he gives them this mission. The contents of this mission seem to be something for which they are grossly underqualified, ridiculously underqualified. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Have you ever applied for a job for which you were grossly underqualified? I know I have a straight out of seminary. I applied to be the pastor of this um, historic, prominent conversation right in the middle of Manhattan. Because why not? 27-year-old me... uh, They were looking for a pastor, a scholar, a theologian with experience who could lead this historic uh, congregation filled with prominent and successful people through continued renewal and revival that had been taking place for over five years. And I read that job description and that job opportunity and I thought, there's no way I should do that. But I'm going to apply for it anyways. I didn't get the job. But I did get a courtesy email thanking me for my interest in the position And letting me know that they decided to go in another direction. So Jesus' mission for his disciples, which includes, by the way, those of us who follow Jesus in this room this day. The mission that he gives his disciples is one which we are a million times less qualified for than I was for that job. Do you feel qualified to forgive people's sins? No, but, you know, maybe with some coaxing we can say, all right, forgiving, I'm fine with forgiving. I can sort of get on board with that. But what about retaining you feel recalled to any you you withhold forgiveness it's going to be withheld anyone want to sign up for that why would jesus ever trust us with this job with this work and he gives it to this group of people who would just turn their backs on him before answering, what, what does this actually look like in practice in the real world? I just want to say, we often forget about the part where Jesus says, I'm gonna, uh, he gives us what we need to do this job. And the what that he gives us is the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And so before they do anything, they get the gift of God's Spirit, God's very life living in them. Because without that, it is certainly mission impossible. Apart from the Holy Spirit in our hearts, it will be impossible for us to understand what this mission entails, what it means to forgive and to retain sins.
And in studying this part of the passage, some of the insights that I found most helpful in thinking, what does this actually mean, is, is just understanding that, that what we're talking about here is not us contributing anything to the work of forgiveness that's already been accomplished on the cross. Jesus already did that. It's just that we implement this by, by declaring this message of forgiveness to others. Of Christ crucified and risen. That's preaching, that's evangelism, that's sharing the good news. That's how we forgive sins. But what about withholding forgiveness? How could we be Christians and claim to do that? And with this, we we face the reality that the good news also contains an element of bad news. That whoever turns their backs on God and insists they don't need forgiveness and lives in such a way that perpetuates sin, brokenness, evil, and death in this world, will, will that trajectory that they're on will continue forever. And the worst thing of all is to end up eternally separated from the Father's love. So the church has this word of grace and this word of warning to share. And they don't contradict, but they actually complement one another. But again, that brings me back to this question. What, does this, what might this forgiving and this withholding look like in practice in the real, actual world? And one answer... Very powerful that I saw recently came from the victim impact statement of a woman named Rachel Denhollander. And she's famous because she's the woman who broke open the story of Larry Nasser, who was the USA gymnastics um, doctor and, uh, and also a doctor at Michigan State University who abused countless women, countless women and girls. And so she was the one who wouldn't let the story die. She went to the Indianapolis Star. That broke this story wide open. And this is part of what she said to him, a short excerpt of what she said to him. But it's incredibly powerful because for me, it's the best example I've seen in my life of of public theology. Of someone bringing their Christian faith to bear on a horrible reality. And she's sharing a message, message both of forgiveness and withholding forgiveness. As she attempts to explain the impact of what Nasser did and how not even he is beyond the reach of grace. And so she said to him, you have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. A man defined by his daily choices repeatedly to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds 
The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. This is what it looks like to fulfill Christ's mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. And might we have a fraction of that wisdom, that courage, that boldness, that grace as we carry out Christ's mission and bear his message into the broken places of this world. And lastly, I don't want to neglect Thomas. In the interest of time, there's no way I'm going to say everything there's to say about this encounter between Jesus and Thomas. But I will say this, that Thomas has often been criticized for his doubts. But the doubt isn't the issue. In his doubts about the resurrection, he's exactly the same as the other disciples who have heard the reports from Mary and Peter and the beloved disciple, and they didn't believe either. It's not his doubts that makes Thomas unique. We shouldn't look down upon him for being doubting Thomas. His real fault is seen in verse 24, where after Jesus gives them this this mission, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. It says in verse 24, Now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. The problem wasn't that he was a doubting Thomas. It's that he was an absent Thomas. So on that first Easter evening, when all the other disciples were gathered in fear, Thomas wasn't there. There was something that kept him away. His discouragement His doubt, his skepticism, his disappointment caused him to absent himself from the gathering of the faithful. And in so doing, he missed Jesus. Friends, I can't tell you how many times I have seen this exact same scenario play out. People lose their faith because they lost their community. Because they've thought that a season of doubt or discouragement or, or, or struggle or disappointment meant that they needed to withdraw from the body. And they got caught up in this negative feedback loop and their feeling of distance from the Lord becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. So my word of encouragement to you is don't let grief or struggle or disappointment or doubt or some feeling of dryness in, in your soul become an excuse to withdraw. Because I can promise you this, if you keep showing up, Jesus will show himself to you. And if you see someone drifting or withdrawing, reach out to them in love. Encourage them to show up. So friends, with this, we leave the gospel of John behind. But but Easter continues each and every Sunday. And when we gather here, we experience and encounter what the disciples did that first Easter evening. What happened then continues to happen now whenever we gather in the Lord's name. Christ is in our midst, in our presence. It says in in the text that Jesus gathered in their midst, but he was right in the middle. 
And so he's at the center of our gatherings when we hear the word read and preached. And we receive his promise of peace and we exchange that sign of peace with one another. The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. We rejoice and we're able to spiritually see and touch his body right at this table. And the Holy Spirit descends upon us as we are sent out in mission. All we need to do is keep showing up with a desire to meet Jesus. And that first Sunday gathering of the church was just the same as this Sunday gathering. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.